The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Hi, folks. I'm WWE Hall of Famer Hacksaw Jim Duggan. If you'd like hearing knock-knock jokes or jokes about your grandmother, go somewhere else! Oh! oh my god, this is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the Two Man Power Trip Podcast. This is Cody Rhodes, and you are listening to Two Man Power Trip. Good, how you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man, what's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. This is a uh, special visitor, the hardcore legend, Mick Foley. It was a very rough feud to go through with Rick. It was a very bitter feud, too. He certainly didn't like me at that time, and I didn't like him, and we were both trying to be at the top. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid up, they knew they could kick the out of me. At this point, well, I'll be at a signing, and little kids will come up to me and throw up the click sign or talk about, oh, your ladder match with Sean at WrestleMania 10. I go, wait a minute. You weren't even a glimmer in your dad's eye. But yeah, bro, it's really flattering and, and amazing and humbling. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling. And now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two men power trip of Somewhere out on the track, Mac. So take me koala back all together now. Tiny kangaroo down, sport. Tiny kangaroo down. Tiny kangaroo down, sport. Tiny kangaroo down. Let me abos go loose, Lou. Let me abos go loose. They're of no further use, Lou. So let me abos go loose all together now. Tiny kangaroo down, sport. Tiny kangaroo down. Goodbye, mates. Well, I reckon this is it. Broken in here, set like a jelly. We're going to be on board one of these big planes, mate, and we'll be crossing the Pacific to the US of A. You know, after roughing it all these years in the outback, people up there, they give you a name. My mates call me Outback Jack, and I reckon when I get over to the WWF, I'm going to make a few new mates. No worries. The real big question is, can a bloke from the harshest, roughest, most toughest place on the earth crack it in the world's hardest and roughest wrestling federation? I'm going to give it a real good go. There'll be no worries about that. Good luck, Jack. 
No worries, mate. Come out back, Jack. Time me kangaroo down. Time me kangaroo down. And now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Rasslin' Pal. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review. We would love to hear your feedback. Check out the feed for awesome past episodes, including Bruno San Martino, Sean Mike, Dusty Rhodes, Jerry Lawler, Terry Funk. Goldberg, Ray Mysterio Jr., Arn Anderson, Glenn Kane Jacobs, and so many more. While you're on the web, visit ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. Visit our store, visit J.J. Dillon's store, Francine's store, and of course, the franchise Shane Douglas' store. For all you Android users out there, find us on Google Play and Player FM. For all you iOS users, check us out on TuneIn Radio, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Podomatic, and now Stitcher. And of course, check out the Empire. Yes, that is the TMPT Empire now. TMPTEmpire.com for all the latest and greatest on the two-man power trip of wrestling. There's an old Australian stockman lying dying. And he gets himself up on the window elbow and he turns to his mates who are gathered around and he says, Watch me while the bees feed, mate. Watch me while the bees feed. They're a dangerous breed, mate. So watch me while the bees feed. All together now, tie me kangaroo down, spot. Tie me kangaroo down. Tie me kangaroo down, spot. Tie me kangaroo down. Keep me cockatoo cool, curl. Keep me cockatoo cool. Don't go acting the fool, curl. Just keep me cockatoo cool. All together now, tie me kangaroo down, spot. Tie me kangaroo down. Tie me kangaroo down, spot. Tie me kangaroo down. Take me koala back, Jack. Take me koala back. I live somewhere out on the track, Mac. So take me koala back all together now. Tie me kangaroo down, sport. Right. Joining us on the line right now is a former WWF superstar during the golden era. You may remember him as Outback Jack. He is Peter Stillsbury. Welcome in to the two-man power trip of wrestling. How are you doing today, sir? G'day there, John. Good to speak to you, mate. How's everything going? It's going very, very good. And you've got a very, very busy weekend coming up this Saturday and Sunday. But first, Saturday, K&S WrestleFest on the 28th for a virtual signing. And then on the 29th yes. at the Wrestling Universe in Queens, New York at 10 a.m. you got a big Universe signing. Queens. That's amazing. Yes, of course. Both things are going to be fantastic, man. I think this virtual thing we're going to do on Saturday afternoon, that's the um, first or second time, actually, I've only ever done something on uh, uh, virtual. I think I did a Facebook one a little while back, but this is going to be a Facebook one again, yeah? Yeah, on K&S WrestleFest on their uh, Facebook page. It'll be Facebook Live on Saturday. It's just so interesting, right, with this new virtual signing and kind of how, you, you know, you greet and meet these fans. Yeah, it's, I think it's going to be fabulous. I'll still always be my photogenic, wonderful, gorgeous self. 
and uh, we can meet and greet as many fans as want to electronically connect. <laughs> Very cool. And then, of course, and of course, uh, Sunday on the 29th at 10 a.m. in Queens, New York, for Wrestling Universe. You go to wrestlinguniverse.com for more info, but you'll be signing and, and actually meeting and greeting some fans. So in this crazy COVID era, we'll actually be able to meet some fans. Well, yes, that'll be wonderful. I always, I always prefer to meet the fans in person as best as I can. You know, it's, uh, it, it gets you that, um, well, the personal contact. Of course, as long as nobody touches me and gives me any sort of COVID-47 bugs, I'll be fine. What do you think about the think Northeast fans? The Northeast the Northeast fans. I mean, you, you know, it's about three years. Oh, I love the Northeast fans. That's, I, I, you know, I was fabulously uh, 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 attracted to them. They, and I, they were some of my strongest fans. I think certainly followed by the Midwest, but Northeast, Boston, New York, you know, New Jersey, Connecticut, all around there was, was fabulous. Of the WWF, especially during uh, that era of the golden era of the yes. WWF that you were in. But man, I mean, those are the, some of the best fans for sure. Well, back in back in the day when I first had my, uh, I, I still call them a doll, but I guess the appropriate term to say now is action figure, was out and about. Um, I sold several million of them in the uh, in the tri-state area in that first Christmas of uh, I think it was '86, 1986, and. Uh, Sold out millions of them. It was was just kind of wonderful. The LJNs, uh, you know, people of, of my age and my era, we remember well. We grew up with those things. They were unbelievable, and the the stories of, of how they sold, like you just said, is just crazy because they're still even sought after today, thirty five years later. Are you shocked at like the popularity of these LJN action figures? Um. Now, because you don't think about it much. I mean, I I I, <laughs> I put it off to a sort of a funny thing because my my son, uh, when he was a youngster, he played without that jack in the bath every night. And you know, I mean, it was just a great old thing. But uh, when you think about it, you know, he would say to his yeah, I I play with my dad's doll in the bath every night, and it, it, it's just. It's strange to look back on, but the, it was completely and totally a phenomenon at the time. And it's um, one of those magical, mystical things uh, of the uh, of the thing that's called professional wrestling. Got to love that. And, and you think about it, I know Hillbilly Jim has stories of like he's making thousands upon thousands of dollars on that, on that toy and, and how basically immortalized a lot of those guys and you know, you and, and, and so many guys, you know, like I said, Hillbilly, uh, Ted RCD, so many people remember him from having the LJN. I mean, it's just crazy what that action figure, you, you know, like you said, the doll did. Yeah, they, they, were, they, were all, they were all well done, too. I mean, there was no, no mistaking who, who a character was. You know, yeah, I mean, you, you picked up the dolls, oh, that's out that Jack, well, that's Ted RCD, or that's Hillbilly Jim. You know, there was, there was no mistakes. Is the... Yeah. Do your stories out there true about how much money was being made off those action figures? Um, <laughs> look, some people made lots of money. Others didn't make much. I, I, I made a, a decent amount, but uh, I was 
they was literally being paid one quarter of one penny per doll. So I had to sell four dolls to make a penny. So I had to sell 400 dolls to make a doll. Oh, wow. Not, yes. not as good a deal as uh, some other people did. Well, true, true. But, uh, you know, that's, you know, that's, uh, that's some people take advantage of other people. It is, like, when you just think about it, though, it, it is crazy how popular, like I said, 35 years later it still is because I still see people selling it, and now, today, selling it for more money than they ever did. If you look on eBay and the other markets and stuff, it's insane how much money like your your guy, you know, your figure is kind of a, up there and a bunch of other guys which is worth so much money. It's just crazy to think yeah, about. Yeah, I, I guess if you could get one of my figurines with the hat and the poster still sealed, that's quite the collector item. Mm-hmm, yep. Pretty rare, uh, for sure. And I remember I had it back in the day, and I... I do regret selling them all when I got older. I damn, I, I it's funny. I look back now. I'm like, man, I wish I kept all those guys. Well, let's see. The dolls are a car. Dolls are a car. Dolls are a car. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Now, how did you actually get into the WWF? Well, the uh, the situation was, um, I was up in the Northern Territory of of Australia. Uh, at a place called Humpty Doo, just out of Darwin. Um, I was working as a uh, jackaroo on a cattle station. I'd just come back from some strange adventures, and I I wanted to drop out of society, as it were. And this was the best place to do it. And every Saturday, we would watch via satellite television um, the wrestling actually was part of the, the wide world of sports stuff. And uh, then the, the wrestling from Madison Square Garden would come on or from wherever they were, uh, the, the venue was that was being put in on tape. And um, we all watched it and carried on and just yahooed and yelled and screamed and drank as much beer as we could. And then one day, out of the blue, in comes these four fellas. One of them was uh, the, uh, the agent, Arnold Scollum. The other was um, uh, Greg the Hammer Valentine, um, Brutus Beefcake, and the last one, I think, was Junkyard Dog. And they came into the Humpty Doo pub, and they'd heard that this was the place where they could come and have a beer and get the real sense of the Australian outback because the WWF was doing a tour of Australia at the time, and they were in Darwin that night. And uh, Humpty Doo was only about 40 miles out of Darwin. Uh, you, you took the road out of Darwin and headed south, which, led, which you know, 1,200 miles away was Catherine, and then you went further down, and eventually, you eventually got to South Australia. But uh, about 20 miles out, he made a, uh, a hard left and went on the um, Arnhem Highway. And that took you into Humpty Doo. And if you followed beyond that, you went into the land of the Never Never. And uh, you went into Arnhem Land. 
So the Humpty Doo pub was the last pub to get gas and supplies, as it were. And we would come from the stations all around, and that's where we all met up on a Saturday morning to have our daily refreshments and waste our paychecks that we'd all earned during the week. And lo and behold, didn't walk these fellas, and they they wanted to uh, see a cattle station. We saw them on television, and we were like, give us a bunch of tickets to go to the matches and I'll take you out to the cattle station that I work on to, um, uh, the, the next morning. And <coughs> we did. And they gave us tickets. We went in and enjoyed the matches. Then the next morning I went and got them at their, at their hotel in Darwin and I took them out to uh, Mary and Joe Grove's place um, out on the road into Arnhem Land. And uh, Mary and Joe Groves had a small place that was... 675 square miles um, so it was, a, it was just a small place but the front <laughs> we turned off from the main road at the front gate and we had to drive another two hours at 40 miles an hour that was the driveway the driveway was 80 miles long to get to the to get to the uh, house so they were quite shocked at that and we uh, we had a fun time we got chased by crocodiles we uh, hunted buffalo and uh, we made buffalo uh, steaks and <laughs> anyway Arnold Scollin said to me kid you got to come back to America I said yeah sure here's my name send anything to me at the care of the Humpty Doo pub <laughs> six weeks later there's a big old letter from the WWF with my name on it and the rest as they say is history Wow, so were you a trained wrestler at all, or they just liked you, you know, you had the size and you had... No, I, I had, I, I, I mean, the only wrestling I did was, you know, drunken wrestling on a Saturday night after you've had far too many beers, and, you know. Uh, so they, when I came over to, to the United States, I, uh, I went out to, uh, landed in New York, got introduced around, and then flew straight over to Calgary, and... Uh, went to work with um, Stu Hart at, at uh, Hart Wrestling in, in Calgary, and I was trained by Les Thornton, the man of a thousand holes. And after that is, a couple, couple of three great. months of training, I came back uh, to, uh, to New York, and I, I believe I made my debut against Nikolai Volkov at Madison Square Garden. And that's quite a debut to make. Were you intimidated at all? Were you nervous at all? <laughs> You're pretty inexperienced in wrestling at the mecca of wrestling against a well, real you know, Things were happening so fast. You, you, yes, you were nervous, of course. But, you know, I'd played plenty, plenty of big-time football games against other teams where there might have been 60 people turn up in the crowd. So... You know, honestly, no, I wasn't quite prepared for the 29,000 bums in suits that there were at the at Madison Square Garden. That was a bit of a shock. So what was it like training in Calgary and then jumping to the WWF? Were you thinking, like, wow, this is too soon? Or you thought, like, okay, this is great, I'm ready? I, You know, I, I didn't think anything of it one way or the other. I mean, I was just doing my job, learning, learning, um, holds and maneuvers and positioning and, you know, ring placement, all that sort of stuff from Les Thornton. And it was like, okay, you're good, time to go. 
uh, away I went. I mean, I wrestled every night of the week, or six nights a week anyway. We, uh, we trained every day, and uh, there was stampede wrestling. We went out six nights a week and wrestled all over, all over um, Canada. When do you meet Vince? When do you meet Vince McMahon? I met Vince um, the first day I got to, to New York. They were in the uh, the old the old Stanford building, um, and I met Vince the very first day, and you know shook hands, introduced, smile, smiles, photographs, all that sort of stuff. Got introduced to the art department and all the appropriate people, the uh, photograph department, all that, and uh, introduced around, and then that the very next morning I was on a plane to uh, to Calgary. What did you think about Vince? Intimidating at all? What did you think about him? Um, he was all right. I mean, uh, you know, at the time he seemed awful friendly, but um, you know, there's there's obviously certain characteristics that he has that uh, make him a showman. No. As far as what he says he wants from you, does he go into like character development, or t- does he talk about what he wants you to be, or not nothing of that? You know, that, that was the thing that was a little disappointing. You know, I obviously don't know anything. I mean, I barely know how to lace up my boots all the way. And you, you didn't get told very much. And that was always disappointing. Because, you know, I, you could have, you felt as though, always felt as though, look, I could have done a better job or I could have, could have uh, put on a better performance if I'd been given some idea what was expected. And uh, so that, that would be the one misgiving I had. But it's, you know, it's a, it's a, the business is a self-starter's business. And, uh, you know, if you've, uh, you're okay there, if you've got, got your own ego, and um, everybody does to a certain level. What do you think about the time in Canada wrestling? I mean, Gama Singh, you were able to wrestle. Uh, Makan Singh, Owen Hart. Yeah, I wrestled Makan Singh. Yeah, we yep. we had a couple of matches there for the North American uh, uh, Heavyweight Championship belts. Um, there were there were obviously a lot of personalities up there. Um, yeah, there were there were certainly some them and us type attitudes. You know. Uh, the, I think there was an issue going on with Les Thornton's school of wrestling and uh, and the Stu Hart uh, uh, setup, and I, I think that might have been the caused any any animosity or was the the basis for some misunderstandings. So how did you think you took to the wrestling business? Did you think like you were a natural? Like how did you think it was going? Oh through? yeah, look, I've always been a natural, a natural athlete. You know, um, it, it was it was fine. You know, uh, and it's just a matter of I, I'd always watched it with my, with my grandma. We 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 watched from the time I was like ten. Where every Saturday and Sunday at noon on the local television, we'd. Uh, We'd sit down and watch World Championship Wrestling, which actually, at the time, was um, NWA, and uh, it was run in Australia by uh, the famous Jim Barnett, 
and uh, what the people at the time that were the big stars were um, good grief uh, uh, Red Bastine um, good grief who else um, Bulldog Brower um, another couple of oh, uh, Tex McKenzie uh, Killer Carl Cox um, Dory Funk Jr you know so the there were big names there, but they were all they were all NWA people. So when you're about to debut for the WWF, they're going to be hyping your debut with vignettes and different things like that. When do they actually kind of bring you back in the fold and let you know, like, hey, we have this crocodile Dundee gimmick, you know, that was a very very popular at that point. Like, when do they kind of bring you back in and say, hey, this is what we're interested in doing with you. This is well, what they, we want they, your character they, to be. They never did. I arrived uh, in the US and we, they'd had the plan for it because I guess the movie Crocodile Dundee had been promoted by the uh, motion picture people um, for a month or two beforehand and of course they managed to get promos in for me starting about two weeks, three weeks beforehand and lo and behold I premiered as it were a day after the movie came out, so we, it was a it was a hand in glove thing from a marketing standpoint, a timing standpoint of uh, exposure. What did you think about the character? Which Dundee or me? Yeah, no, no, you playing Outback Jack and being that character. Well, it wasn't. Look, it wasn't too far from who I was. You know, I mean, it's, it's uh, the name. I mean, I've always been known as Jack even though the official name is, as you said, but I, I don't ever use that. I mean, if I walk down the street, I, you could call it out and yell it 20 times and I'd never turn around because that's not something I respond to. But um, um, I, I'd lived in the bush, done all sorts of crazy things in the bush, you know, worked a cattle station, worked on farms, so it was nothing. I dealt with crocodiles and... So it was nothing out of the out of the ordinary. You know, not everybody had done that, but that just happened to be my lifestyle. So it was easy for you to play that character. Oh yeah, absolutely. So Vince never kind of sits you down and says like, you know, you always hear stories of different guys where he's like, oh, I want you to play this character, and and they have to like, you know, not. Um, practice for you or, or audition, but they, he kind of wants you to go through stuff and go, does he, well, so he didn't have to do that with him? Uh, no, you, it, it's, he's a character that's easy to get your head into because it's who you are. So it's not, it's like all these method act, actors have to draw from the cosmos. I didn't, I just said, okay, this is me. Boom, easy. So when Vince is putting together, you know, obviously the, the jacket, the hat, the look, is there any collaboration on your part where you're like, okay, no, this is what I should be wearing, this is what I want to wear? Is it that or they tell you, to, you know, what you're going to be wearing and the look and everything? Oh, no, we, we collaborate on that. You know, what do you think, you know, what about your hat? I said it should look like it's a slouch hat. Have the, the side go up and we probably should put some uh, crocodile leather on the underside. And they came up with putting the teeth on, you know. And uh, so uh, then we, uh, we we made the vest. The vest was made of water buffalo, 
with again with some um, alligator, sorry, not alligator, crocodile skin on the shoulders. And then uh, Norman, I'm sorry, not the, uh, uh, what was his name? Good grief. Marvin. Marvin, uh, yeah, Marvin, I think it was, was the head of the crocodile on the back, but actually that was a that was an alligator. So it's kind of, like you said, it's easy for you. You know the Australian outback. They're kind of promoting that, you know, you're from the Australian outback. So everything is very true. They they show you, you know, drinking beer. They're showing cows. They're showing you with a Jeep. And, I mean, they're really doing all this stuff. Norm the Bull was a piece of work, man. So what did you think about all those vignettes? They seem like a lot of fun and, and like, you know, very cool and very perfect for that time period. They were. They were. They were, they were, they were a tremendous amount of fun. You know, um, nothing was uh, was terribly different in them. I mean, if you think about the bull-catching uh, vehicle, that was just like if you wanted to compare it to something. It was like if you remember John Wayne in that movie, Dactari, when they were out, you know, capturing all the... Uh, all the uh, African animals to send back to zoos. I mean, using a bull catcher to catch uh, water buffalo to uh, harvest them for meat, that's that's what you did. So perfect for the time period. I feel like they did a great job back then of vignettes and promos and debuting guys the right way. Well, and it, well, got, it, you know, it, it got you interested. It didn't, it didn't take much thinking because it was natural. It was simple. Now, it's not like you're trying to in- invent Spider-Man. You know, it's yeah. like, like there's, there's this bloke named Jack. We met up in the Humpty Doo pub. Um, and he's he's a madman. And he's from the Outback. Why don't we just call him Outback Jack and bring him in as a character? Okay, let's do that. And they did. I mean, it, it's it's not two deeper thoughts into the alchemy to work out how they did it. Yeah, very, very cool. And like I said, the promos of vignettes were great debuting. It gets people interested in the character. You know who the character is. Then you said it's simplistic, but I feel like in today's wrestling world, they don't do stuff like that. And it's almost, they, they need to go back to doing that and, and the vignettes and debuting people like that. Cause I think it's important for the fans to delve into the character that way. Well, the, the, it was also in 1986. It was a, without getting too crazy about it, it was a much simpler time. I mean, I, I sound like I'm talking back in the 20s. It was a much simpler time. And the, you know, in 86, it was a much simpler time. And you know, the the complexities of a character were just the person the character was. Like Billy Jack Haynes was Billy Jack Haynes. You know. Um, King Harley Race was we all knew King Harley Race as Harley Race, and he was he was who he was, the king. It, it didn't require too much thoughts and efforts, you know. The uh, but as you say, the, the new characters that have to be brought in, there has to be a a legend goes along with them, and by legend I mean a three dimensional character development. Otherwise, they're not necessarily believable. Like, you didn't have to think too hard about uh, 
um, what's his name from uh, Pittsburgh, Bruno Sammartino. I mean, he was Bruno Sammartino. You know, it's it's pretty simple. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like during that era, obviously, it's really what I consider the golden era of wrestling in the 80s, especially the mid-80s. I mean, the WWF just absolutely caught fire running, you know, three, four towns at night. And, you know, obviously Hulk Hogan is on top of the world. What did you kind of think about that? Because you got all those larger-than-life characters. Were you, like, aware, like, wow, there's this this is something wrong to me. This is, this is gigantic. This is huge. Well, it, it is, you know, you, 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 you don't think about it too much. Um, there were two, two things that, uh, that brought it to mind. One was I was driving uh, home from Stanford. I, I, I don't know where I'd been, but I was driving back up 95 to go to Fairfield, Connecticut, where I lived. And I was fanging for some food. So I had a, a lady friend with me, and we pulled off and went to one of the service stations, service you know areas there where there was a McDonald's. Pulled up at the drive-through, and I you know I ordered a couple of Big Macs, you know, blah blah blah. Anyway, she said back through the speaker, she said, "Are you out back, Jack?" And I said, "Yeah." And anyway, she was all gushy and crazy. At the at the window, um, and my lady friend said, I, "I." She said, "I never would have believed that if I hadn't seen it myself. That you can speak through a speaker to deliver a takeout order, and you're recognised." And the the only other time I I thought of the significance of it was when you. Somebody talked about totaling up the television audience that would see us on a weekly basis from the varying uh, shows, you know, Saturday night's main event, um, the live shows from wherever, or the what other shows that were on at the time. And it worked out around 70 million viewers saw us and watched our show every week. And that... That's not insignificant. Hey, that's about as many people as voted for Donald Trump. How about that? <laughs> yep. It's insane, the so, popularity, yep. Yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it was stunning. I mean, you, you couldn't go anywhere um, without either signing 46,000 autographs or being swamped by people. And of course, you know, I always, I always had manners. I mean, I just, I stayed and hung around for everybody. I mean, uh, do you remember Bob Backlund? Oh yeah. Bob Backlund was uh, was the world champion there for the longest time, and he would stick around to sign autographs, and that's what you did as um, an idol or as a as a hero. You stood around and you 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 know you gave. I don't want to say audience, but for want of a better term, you were there for the guests, for the fans, because they were your people. And that's the way you did it. Crazy, like you said, you get recognized just by your voice through the drive-thru and, and how popular you said there's millions upon millions upon millions of people watching. What did you think about one of the most larger-than-life characters? And, and obviously, yeah, I mentioned Hogan, but I also wanted to mention 
Andre the Giant. Were you close with Andre at all? Yeah, Andre and I were very good friends. Certainly, uh, obviously not as good as his mate Frenchie or, or, you know, Timmy White uh, took care of Andre wherever he went. But Andre and I, we became very, very close friends. And uh, he was a good man. And there, there was a fellow that was, I mean, talk about a fellow that's a, a legend in his own lifetime. I mean, we all were to some extent, but there's nothing like Andre. I mean, Andre, Andre was Andre, and there was no getting away from it, no disguising it. There was, you know, what are you going to do? Go to the local tire place, get your tires changed by Andre the Giant? No, Andre's Andre. It's like, <laughs> let's go, let's go to the. Uh, oh, what's that big building over there? Oh, that's. Uh, that's the what the Empire State Building. Huh? Who's that standing beside? Oh, that's Andre the Giant. You know, it's, it, he's as he's as um, symbolic as as that. He is one of those guys that you know, as a fan back then, it's like, oh my god, this guy is just massive and scary and and just like larger than life, but even times ten. I mean, he was one of those guys. You're just like, holy crap. You just don't forget a guy like that. You just don't miss a guy like that. It's just great. And then you throw in, you know, the Hogans and the Pipers and the Savages. They had so many guys that were so captivating. It was really, like I said, it was really just an absolute golden era. Were you kind of thinking, like, man, they, we got stars coming out of the wazoo here? Well, no. Legends, they're just saying on documentaries to this and that, but you know, sometimes you have a wrestler tell a story and he might exaggerate or you know, maybe go a little crazy. Is it true about Andre and those drinking stories? Um, I don't know all of them, but uh, the ones that I participated in, they were true. And he, he loved his red wine, and uh, he would drink bottles of red wine, and I'd, I'd try and stick with him as far as I could with my bottles of beer. And um, he would always <laughs> outdrink me, but because uh, he outweighed me by 250 pounds. But you know, it, uh, he he was a phenomenon. And you know, I mean, I, I can understand why he did things. I mean, he, he enjoyed his red wine. Simple as that. I mean, he was a full-blown connoisseur of uh, of, uh, of food, without a question. And certainly. Uh, had the capability of, of a sommelier to know uh, to know his wines. 
Yeah, these stories about his drinking are absolutely legendary. So what about the Hulkster, Hulk Hogan, the man, you know, that kind of was the uh, the man that stirred the drink, I guess you could say. He was like the, the head honcho of, of this big era. He he was the guy. What did you think about the Hulkster? Did you have any sort of relationship with him? Yeah, we were nice. Uh, we, we were nice. We, uh, uh, we, we had a couple of drinks together afterwards, yeah. Uh, but um, it was, uh, Hulk tried to keep himself a little sane. By as soon as he was done, and if he didn't have any other obligations, he, he he liked to be out of the limelight because, unfortunately, he was the business. And even now, at where he is, what is he? I I can't remember his age, but you know, he's still hanging in there, and he's still Hulk Hogan. And the worst of it is now. Do you wonder? Has he become? a cartoon character and a cartoon character that he can't, he can't get out from under. Do you follow what I'm saying there? It might be a little deeper than we're thinking about, but, uh, yeah. Like he actually isn't Terry Belay anymore. He's Hulk Hogan. Like I know what you mean. I know what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's, he's, I mean, I, I don't know if anybody calls him Terry. I don't even know if his wife calls him Terry. If he's got a wife, I, I, I don't know what, what's going on. Maybe, Maybe Linda used to call him Terry. But, uh, you know, I mean, in that instance, life can tend to get away from you. And you do like the peace and quiet. And that comes to be understandable with with celebrity. And certainly the celebrity status we enjoyed from the, you know, late 80s into the 90s. I mean, you, you, there were fellows that would get mad because somebody would come up to you in a restaurant and it's like, you know, I, I never used to get mad about that, but I understood their position because, you know, you don't want to be biting into a lovely piece of steak. And then somebody come up and be standing beside you and say, excuse me, sir, can I have an autograph? Of course, you know, you've always got to do that. But some fellows would get snarling. Um, but that's, I just, I just never did that. I, I, I do see the point of maybe trying to, insulate yourself away from the everyday celebrity to having some private time. Some other crazy characters during that era, guys that just stick out are like the British Bulldogs, maybe even more so Dynamite Kid. Did you have some issues with Dynamite? No, he's a little bit of a bully. Jacques Rougeau obviously had his problems with him and dealt with, dealt with him accordingly. But did you have problems with Dynamite Kid? Look, the Dynamite Kid has passed away. He and I were not friends, and that is that. Now, there was another kind of incident with, uh, I guess he was like an enhancement guy, or he wasn't really a, a WWF superstar, so to speak, but um, tell us a little bit about that trouble you had with Steve Strong, Steve DeSalvo, because I remember there was, um, like, it's not really an incident, but it was one of those things where it's, it was a tough match, so to speak. Yeah, that was, that was up in the Montreal, so, you know, we did not get along at all well. Uh, he, he was a he was a cruel boy, and all he wanted to do was crush people. And I mean, he he, he thought he was something special. He played football. He was strong. He was you know had a good physique, but and he thought he was a tough guy. But he was only a tough guy against um, people that couldn't fight back. And we we had uh, we had a, a very serious uh, knock around in the ring 
that was about the, the worst match you could ever possibly see. And uh, I unfortunately had to put him over. And uh, it, when I when I put him over for the three count, he was basically he was unconscious on me because I I I driven my fist so far into his belly I touched his spine and he couldn't breathe and he passed out. And then I threw him off and and uh, I I walked out and he walked back in the ring and I mean it was it was could have gotten very very nasty back in the dressing room. He the whole the whole. The whole thing was a setup, and he he was there. He was there to be a crowbar to try and to try and straighten me out, and that's like you know, hey, not a chance, boy. So who was that kind of coming down from? I think that was coming down from Pat Patterson. Did you have any sort of issues with Pat? I I wouldn't piss on him if he was on fire. <laughs> I, I guess not a fan. I guess like it would be uh, suffice to say. An evil, an evil, power-hungry megalomaniac. There was no. a nothing back in his day, and there's a nothing now. Was he one of the head bookers at this point? Was he, or was he the main booker? Who or was? I guess he was. was, he was man? I guess he was vice president of, of uh, operations or something like that. He was the uh, he was the number uh, number two. And was that and just, just a, a known thing? You guys had a problem. Um, he he played favorites with people, and that was that. And uh, any troubles any troubles that I had was stemmed from his interference. And of course, oh no, it wasn't me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, check his shorts for a uh, a foreign object. <laughs> so when you got to the back after uh, dealing with Steve Strong, Steve Salvo, did any uh, Pat or anybody say anything to you? Was there anything said? Oh no, there, there, there was going there was going to be a fight, and I actually said to Pat Patterson because he was standing beside me. I said, "You best move away because you make a twitch, I'm going to bust your jaw." Because I knew at that point I was in the I was in the locker room by myself, meaning that I was on my own. And it was a, the Canadian contingent, and I thought you fellas want to want to try and beat me up. This is going to get ugly, 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 ugly. I probably would have lost, but boy, oh boy, there'd have been some very sick pups afterwards. So what happened? It settled down. I gathered my stuff up and I walked out. And after that, was there any sort of problems with Pat and any of the Canadian? Uh, oh, it didn't, it didn't improve. I mean, the the Canadians knew not to not to carry on. It was just there was no point. And who was going? The only people that were going to carry on a little bit were the Bulldogs. But you know, that was that was the blind leading the stupid. You know. Yeah. Yeah. As far and, as. Uh, Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say, as far as kind of like locker room, and was there a lot of issues and fights and a lot of dissension going on in the locker room back then? Uh, look, everybody had issues with everybody at some point. I mean, you know, somebody gives you one potato too many, you got to start to wonder. You know, no and, doubt, and yeah. you either sort it out, you sort it out uh, in the ring, 
um, with a, an immediate payback or, you know, you, you sort it out afterwards in the locker room. And the, probably the worst case of that was uh, um, Danny Spivey and uh, 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 what's his name, um, the big fat bloke, um, Adrian Adonis. I mean, Adonis was just crazy. I mean, I guess uh, I didn't I didn't see it. I wasn't there, but uh, I was in another circuit. But he allegedly uh, leg-dived um, Danny Spivey, and Spivey clocked him and busted his eye open. I mean, Spivey wasn't a fellow you, you wanted to piss off. No, I wouldn't think so. <laughs> Big boy. Well, it's not the, it's not the size. It's... It's tough too. It's, yeah. the, it's the strength of it's the strength of a lot of things. Character and what you, you know, what you think he can do with his hands. And he had he had hands of stone, and you knew that was the hands were tough from hard work. And uh, you know, you can be as strong as an ox in the gym, but it's a different matter when you're strong from being a worker and having hands of steel from working with steel. You know. Absolutely. When you were in the WWF, was there any promises made? Because, you know, when you first came in, you know, obviously you're on a bit of a winning streak. You'd be Barry O and Iron Mike Sharp and and Barry Horowitz. You even will get a win eventually over Iron Sheik and Volkov and, like, a bunch of big key wins. Was there ever any promises of, like, hey, we're going to give you a push, we're going to do anything, or they don't really talk about it? There was always you were getting a push, you know, um, I did a bunch of matches against Randy Savage, and I thought, you know, what are they doing here? They, they're going to do a belt swap or something like that. But I, you just you wonder. But the, the one, the one thing we, I, I, I was closely groomed for with him doing gym was to be um, world tag team champion. But um, a couple of things went wrong there. Any promises made? Well, no, no, that wasn't. You know, they, they didn't do that. I mean, they might have made it to somebody else, but they certainly didn't do that to me. Yeah. What did you think about Randy, Randy Savage? Oh, absolutely, gentlemen, friend of mine. Good work. Are these stories of him being wild and crazy, is that true or out of hand, or no, is it maybe exaggerated? Not at all. Um, he... Uh, I mean, when I, I mean, I, I worked with him when he was with Miss Elizabeth. So, you know, again, they would, they would come to the, uh, to the arena, have their locker room set up, their, their dressing room. Um, that was that. Then you'd come out and you'd, you'd talk with you, you'd work out the bits and pieces, and then you'd go do your match. And he'd come back in and go back in the locker room. And uh, that was it. I mean, I... Um, just because of necessity, I, I, I drove him maybe half a dozen times because we were both going in the same direction and I had the car, you know. But uh, good fellow, good fellow. Also, when you're there... Oh, I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, I'm, I, you know, I'm good mates with his, uh, his brother, uh, um, um, Lanny. The genius, Leaping Lanny. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. As far as the you know the WBF at this point, like they always have the undercard guys 
or the mid-card guys. I mean, they seemed like they always had something for everybody doing. You kind of had a, a bit of a feud with Frenchie Martin. You had a bit of a feud with Ron Bass. What was your thought on, on your place in the card and what they were doing with you as you're going through 86 and 87? Um, it was, I, I, you know, it, it, the, the card's got to be made up of everybody. You know, you, you, it was always, I mean, disappointing personally within to be the opening match. It was always more fun to be the last match before intermission or to be the first match after intermission. Of course, there was generally you, one other match, and then the main event. You know, I mean, one time I was main event with King Kong Bundy. Um, we did that a, a half a dozen shots. It was, uh, that was good. It was good to be main event. What did you think about working with my good old buddy? He was definitely a good buddy of mine, uh, King Kong Bundy. Oh, Bundy, uh, he and I were good mates. He and I were good mates. And I, I, I was very sad when he passed. Yes, it definitely is very, very sad. And kind of just unexpected, uh, for sure, because he was so young. He was only uh, early 60s. But it was just thinking back with him, people always kind of gave like a different opinion of him. It was weird. It was like, I guess because of his character, and sometimes he could be ornery, but they didn't realize he was, he was actually one of the nice guys. I know he was quote-unquote a heel, but he was one of the good ones. He was one of the nice guys. Yeah, no, he was. I mean, he... He and I, um, he actually got me into in, in investment banking. He knew a bunch about investing. And um, we happened to be, I don't know, either driving or drinking or catching a plane. And he spoke to me about options and he told me about a company. I didn't know anything about it. And... Uh, I didn't know anything about investing at all. And uh, anyway, we fooled around, made a bit of money. And then one of the things I did when I left uh, wrestling, I went and worked as a, uh, as a broker for Lehman Brothers in Boston and then actually became an options trader and then went on to trade futures and uh, commodities. Wow, kind of all, all because of uh, Chris, all because of uh, King Kong Bundy. Wow, yeah. that's, that's cool. Wow, awesome. Yeah. He led you down that path. Huh. He did. Smart, smart chap. Smart chap. And, you know, I mean, um, we all have our off days and stuff like that. But, you know, it was, it was sad to see him go, but it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, a surprise, really, and uh, that sounds cruel. But I mean, you're a big fella. You've been a big fella for that long. There's a strain goes on, and he he was a diabetic, and uh, I think there were some very serious ravages of diabetes going on that he either didn't take care of or not aware of. And uh, I mean, I same. I'm I'm a diabetic, and uh, you know, I the the ravages I have is from diabetes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah. I guess he just uh, kind of didn't really uh, take care of himself as, as well, obviously as maybe he should have. But as far as you and, and the WWF, why did you end up leaving the uh, WWF when you did? Um. I, 
I didn't really leave. I, I guess I, I didn't get, I got phased out, I suppose, because things, I, I had the, they had the issue with Pat Patterson. And of course, I, I'd had, I'd had great matches during the week. And I was, and the, Vince was being, was being reported to Vince by Pat that I was having shit matches. And it just wasn't true. I, I got that back from Chief J. Strombo that, you know, there was stuff being said behind the back that just wasn't true. And, you know, I, I eventually started to get less and less. I mean, first year you, you're doing 320 matches a year. The second year you're doing 300. Then the third year you, you're down to 200. And then all of a sudden you're down to 60. You know, for sure. So before your exit, you know, you know they'll put you kind of sometimes in an enhancement role. They'll have you lose here and there, and you know, they'll put you in the ring with Tibiasi and Rude and you know, Bad News. But and, and you'll come up short. And, you know, you take a bunch of losses. Is that something that you're just like after being on a bit of a winning streak? Were you, you were surprised at that, or you kind of felt that no, it, had it, what was going on? I think I think that was uh, you know. Vince, every idea that happens in the WF only happens because Vince thinks of it. Yet, sometimes I don't think he's bright enough to fully understand that sometimes he's being manipulated. And of course, a lot of things he does is only because it's Vince's win. So, you know, I mean, and it's, it's always been his, his maxim that I can make or break anybody. I can make anybody into anything, and I can break anybody. Uh, the only two times that that didn't work for him was Hogan and Andre. Uh, he tried to he tried to pull that stunt with Savage, and Savage said, "Hey, look at that! It's a WCW right over here," and off he went. Yeah. Yeah, I, think that, I think that was the breakdown at that point. I think that was the breakdown of the cachet of the WWF, WWE. Yeah, when when you, lo- you know when you lose Hogan and Savage, I mean that that was a huge loss for them. And obviously, you know they had the steroid trial before that, but WCW then for a, a few years. Began, there, was there, was no there was no steroid trouble. I mean that's that's absurd. There was no steroid controversy? Not at all. And that's, somebody made it up to look good. Yeah. I mean, if you wanted to do your research and try and find um, a book of rules for the WWF, I don't think you'd find many pages. Yes, there were were rules against other drug use because there was huge drums about um, the unfortunate demon white powder that was going around everywhere uh, that uh, that caused drama. So they had to straighten that stuff out, and they did. No question, they did that. But uh, you know, nobody ever got suspended because of spirits. I mean, they may have changed their mind after that. I mean, who knows? You know, the the whole thing with that uh, what was his name? The fellow from um, Hershey, Pennsylvania. 
Dr. Zavorian. Yeah. So was there a steroid problem, you think, at all? Oh, every, everybody used steroids. I mean, for goodness sake, you had to use steroids to maintain your body with the beating it took. I mean, you think it's easy to bounce around in a ring 30 minutes, 40 minutes a night, seven nights a week, four months in a row. Now you, you get tired one night, you have a slip up, and next thing you know, you've dislocated your shoulder or you've thrown your back out or you go out over the top rope a little goofy and you, you, know, you smash your lower back. I mean, the injuries pile up. And the only way to recover from that stuff is to have had some obviously heavy-duty muscle on board, but the anabolic steroids, they assisted in the healing process. And I blew out a shoulder once. Uh, I was, it was like working with the Anvil Neidhart, and uh, he threw me out, and I, I landed on my elbow, and I drove my elbow, drove my arm through the top of the shoulder, and I had to pull it back in place, but my shoulder was completely screwed. So, I, you, you know, if you didn't wrestle, you didn't get paid. So, you know, I couldn't, I, I, I really couldn't work, but I did. But only the reason that I was, I was uh, taking steroids at the time, I was probably able to get back into the gym and start doing you know, 45 pound flies um, after 10 days, as opposed to being out for six weeks and needing surgery. You know, I mean, wow. a, a forty-five pound flies. That was that was good because um, I normally did anywhere from eighty-five to one hundred and ten pound flies, and uh, you know, you you were strong. You know, the byproduct does was you, you were strong as an ox. But when the injuries came, I helped repair. Yeah, like you said, you're working four months in a row and sometimes twice a night. I mean, it's. Definitely need it. You need something. Yep. It's just it's you know you walk you work some of the smaller towns and you you you're dealing with a local bloke that doesn't quite have his timing right and I mean you know you you hyperextend the leg or something stupid or you know somebody just misses something because they're tired and you know you you run the risk of a potential um, six month Look at Paul Orndorff. Paul Orndorff got uh, body slammed or something or suplexed or something and didn't realize until too late that he'd um, he pinched the nerve in his arm. He kept working and working and working and his his arms withered away. Yeah, yep, atrophy, big time, yep. Now, as we head towards the finish, we head towards the wind down. I always just like to ask the guys, because sometimes I like to go back and I, you know, say it's like a YouTube playlist or, you know, a best of or something. But do you have some favorite matches and favorite opponents that you would suggest oh, yeah. that, you know, you go mm-hmm. back and watch? I don't, I don't watch them because I can't see anymore because I'm blind. Um, but from the, the uh, my fertile mind, I go back and I relive the matches, of course. Um, one of the best opponents I ever had was um, the mighty Hercules. Uh, he and I worked so well together because he was such a such a great professional. 
And one of the best matches we ever had, we did 45 minutes together in Hersey, Pennsylvania, full house, and we were, we were a semi-main event, and we brought the house down. It was amazing. It was just amazing. That was a hell of a match. And one of the other best ones I had was at uh, the Meadowlands. I worked with um, Harley Race. And it was, it was just incredible. I home well, most, most, most of the big names back then were good and easy to work with. You know, Harley um, um, Race, I said, was, was great to work with. Uh, good grief. Don Morocco was fabulous to work with. You know, they were, they were all just good to work with. Even Rick Rude. Rick Rude and I got on well, although... Sometimes Rick would be a little tired and he'd forget about what he was doing and, you know, he'd tell you to watch your stomach and next thing you know, you took an elbow in the face. Um, those things happened. But every, yeah. everybody was, you know, there, there were a couple of people that tried to hurt you, but nobody ever, nobody ever really did a significant thing like Steve Strong tried to. Yeah, you were so many of the great guys, man. I mean, we named a bunch, but uh, Kamala, One Man Gang, Killer Khan. I mean, they kind of like that list goes on and on. There's so many good right. wrestlers back then. They all seem like legit stars or legit guys you, you'd want to watch. There was definitely a different era back then. Yeah. <laughs> One of the more fun ones was when we, we did a European tour, and I was working with Nikolai Volkov. And... Um, Nicola said to me, he said, hey, let me press slam you and uh, you can body slam me or do whatever you need to do. I said, fine. So I let him do you know, the, the full press slam, which was fine. It was, the ring was good. It was great. And I went to pick him up later on in the match to, to scoop slam him, and he sat on my arm, which means you know, at 300 pounds, no matter how strong you are, if a fellow sits on your arm, meaning he sits sits down, so you can't you're lift, trying to lift him up off of your forearm and your hand, as opposed to getting him hooked right, you know, in in the crook of your elbow where it's easy to get leverage. And he sat on my arm. I was furious, and we exchanged some blows in the ring, and I gave him a bloody ear, and uh, he never he never did it again. Nikolai was a, was a friend of mine. He was a good man. Oh, yeah. Uh, Still cannot work out how he did his bloody card tricks. I have <laughs> no clue how he did his card tricks. And we'll never know now, which stinks. Never know. Yeah. He took it to the grave with him. As far as you and your career, Outback Jack, and obviously you know, all your time in the wrestling business, what do you think is the lasting legacy? What is the stamp? What are people going to remember about you? I think they'll remember that I was a genuine character and that I was a good bloke. That's the important thing. I wasn't an asshole. And that's the important thing. I was, I was um, conscious of the fans and the, I was there because of the fans. Also want to mention again, 1128 this weekend with K&S WrestleFest. You can go to K&S WrestleFest on Facebook. There'll be a virtual signing on their Facebook page via Facebook Live. And, of course, 
Sunday the 29th in Queens, New York at Wrestling Universe. You can go to WrestlingUniverse.com for more. Mr. Outback Jack, do you have any other sort of uh, plugs or any sort of social media that you do? No, I don't do social media. I don't trust it. <laughs> I just, I just don't trust it. I, ba- I, I barely do texting or emails. Hey, I got you. I, I feel you on that one. But uh, again, like I said, KNS WrestleFest and Wrestling Universe this weekend. A very rare appearance of a man from the golden era. Out back, Jack. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Stillsbury. I appreciate all the time tonight. Big Bad John, it was wonderful. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.